everyone, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. My name is Nathan Coleman-Lamb, and I am joined by my good friend, Derek Silva. Hi, Derek. Hey. Well, folks, we've got another show that we're excited about for you today. Uh, we have Queen's University professor Courtney Zito, a leading scholar on hockey in general, and specifically race, multiculturalism, and gender. Uh, and basically like anything you could possibly want to talk about when it comes to hockey. Yeah. And we try to cover a lot of that ground in our interview today. This is kind of the beginning of our CanCon week, right, Derek? It's an interesting week here. We've had a baseball week and now we're moving on to this CanCon week this week. Exactly. We got we to expose for our non-Canadian listeners just how problematic Canadian society really is. Because especially as someone living yeah. in the United States, right, there's a little bit too much of this kind of utopian thinking about uh, Canada in general. And like, you know, don't let the fact that the United States is a dystopian nightmare uh, blind you to the <laughs> fact that, in fact, Canada has plenty of problems of its own, especially with hockey. we got to start with hockey today because, I mean, hockey is Canada for so many Canadians. And when you start to take apart hockey culture, you get to the truth of Canada a little bit. Courtney Zito is Assistant Professor of Kinesiology and Health Studies at Queen's University. She is the Senior Editor of Hockey and Society, Associate Editor for Engaging Sports, and author of the forthcoming book with Rutgers University Press, Changing on the Fly, Hockey Through the Voices of South Asian Canadians. Courtney, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. And I'm glad that you said the title of the book because I never remember it. <laughs> Yeah, that's always the struggle, isn't it? I totally hear you. People assume you know, like you know your book and everything about it, like the back of your hand. Absolutely not. No. Yeah, I always remember the changing on the fly part is easy, but what comes after the colon has changed a few times, so I'm, I never quite know. Yeah, there are negotiations with that sometimes too. Yeah, oh I to totally, totally get that. Um, so, listen, Courtney, how's the pandemic treating you in Kingston, Ontario? Um, it's not too bad. I mean, we haven't had a lot of cases and I think the cases that we have aren't in the hospital system. So um, we've been very fortunate in that area. But I think because of that, people have just decided that the pandemic is is over here. And oh, so, I see. Um, for the Similar past few here. weeks, everybody, there's been, yeah, there's just more and more traffic out and, and there's less face masks when you go out and uh, people are definitely getting mm -hmm. antsy. So so we're lucky that we're in a bubble that it's not too bad. But at the same time, I think uh, it can be problematic. Yeah, uh, that, that totally makes sense. And speaking of problematic, I think what we're going to do today is talk about <laughs> a lot of things that are problematic in the world of sport. And in the world of sport, um, or at least the world that is often perceived to be a very progressive place, which is to say Canada. Um, as someone currently ensconced in the white supremacist dystopia that is the United States, I can certainly say that Canada is often viewed from beneath as a rather utopian site of racial equity, um, sometimes known as multiculturalism in Canada, certainly. Uh, the United States, I'm not sure if that's as pervasive a kind of term or concept. Courtney, could you perhaps start by explaining what's wrong with the liberal discourse of multiculturalism that pervades <laughs> Canadian culture and politics today? Uh, and that is, like most liberal discourses... What does its lofty rhetoric, because I mean, it sounds really good on paper, disguise and elide about the concrete realities of Canadian society? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a term that I amplify in my thesis and that's in the book that I didn't create, but it, I found it in a piece published by Rabble uh, on racism in Canada in 2016. And the term is Canadian splain, uh, which is a riff off of the term mansplaining. But Canadian splaining basically means, um, yes, we will admit that there's racism in Canada, but the excuse is, but it's never as bad as it is in the States. Um, and so we just kind of put ourselves on this moral high ground that is not actually based in fact, because um, I think the Globe and Mail did, did a study in 2014 or 2016, and they found that um, Canada had higher per capita rates of um, hate crimes uh, against Black Canadians and Indigenous mm -hmm. Canadians than than appear in the states. So um, it is it is a very mythological belief in Canada that um, if you invite lots of people into our nation, that ev everybody suddenly gets along. Um, but the reality is that 
there isn't a lot of work that goes into actively making sure that people go along. We've kind of done the invite people and stir, um, and and that's good enough. Uh, so there is actually a lot of tension um, in Canada. And I think you're seeing that with coronavirus right now, right? With all the uh, mm. anti-Asian um, violence, particularly in British Columbia. Um, so I think the reality is that when you invite uh, more diverse people into a space, there's actually, it's quite possible to have more hate um, and and kind of resentment because you're asking for more sharing of resources, really. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and oh, so, okay, so bear with me because I have a relatively long-winded question to connect this, okay. um, connect this approach to multiculturalism to the sport angle. Um, in your 2016 piece in um, Sociology of Sport Journal, uh, hashtag lol at or lol at multiculturalism, reactions to Hockey Night in Canada, um, Punjabi from the Twitterverse, you argue that some Canadians are perplexed by the sight of multiculturalism uh, in the context of Hockey Night in Canada, while not at least on the surface being opposed to the idea of it. But mm-hmm. you also, I think, really importantly noted that laughter was often observed as this sort of common reaction to Hockey Night in Canada um, on Twitter, and that consequently Punjabi Sikh um, Canadians are situated as sort of a paradoxical um, position to hockey in Canada. Uh, In my own work, um, myself and colleagues analyzed public reactions to the Humboldt Broncos bus tragedy um, and found that public responses there present a really narrow representation of both Canadian and local prairie identity. And these are narratives like we are all Broncos. We've sort of all quote unquote, all been on that bus before. And these paint a really singular view of Canadian identity and hockey's role in that identity formation. So what I think that these pieces have in common are that they both highlight how hockey paints an incredibly narrow, and I would argue really damn white and masculine picture of what it means to quote unquote be Canadian. So my question is to what extent does the discourse of multiculturalism pervade the world of hockey? And to put it quite bluntly, is Canadian hockey culture racist? Um, Yeah, there's a lot going on there. So I think um, (laughs) (laughs) your description of it being a very narrow interpretation is absolutely correct. But even I think to say that hockey is very white and male Canadian is already too broad of a a stroke to brush. Um, Mm. Because somebody like Sidney Crosby is not treated the same way as like a Colton Orr, right? So there is a particular type of masculinity that is even narrower than just to say all white males. So hockey culture in and of itself likes to walk a particularly thin line. Um, and how that kind of intertwines with, with hockey, first of all, there is no actual strategic connection um, between multiculturalism as a federal um, priority and sport. Like scholars have found this, that we, we like to tout the line, but again, there is no actual work going into it. So the sense in Canada is that um, we don't need to solve racism because it's not a problem. It's not here. And I think that that's probably the biggest problem with the multicultural rhetoric is that um, how do you fix something that isn't an issue, right? If people don't Mm -hmm. agree that this needs to have space and and time for us to work on. Um, So that is one assumption is that... um, we don't really need to fix anything because it's not a problem. It's really always the bad apples kind of saying, which nobody ever runs that yeah. saying through to its conclusion anyways, because it's one, you know, bad apples ruined the bunch. Not you just throw out the ones that, <laughs> that are there. Um, mm-hmm. And there's also this uh, overarching discourse that time um, is all we need to solve racism. So you bring more people in and those generations, the younger generations will fix everything. But time by itself has never actually solved any issue of injustice, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the men of Canada did not wake up in 1918 and look at their calendar and say, you know what, today would be a really good day for women to start voting. Um, women fought very hard for that right behind yeah. the scenes. And then it just kind of it caves away and it looks like this monumental moment. 
So whenever we have small victories towards reconciliation or anti-racism, it's not that time changes it. It's that people are fighting day in and day out behind the scenes to make that happen. And the third thing that I would say about racism and multiculturalism in sport is that we only really talk about race when there is a happy ending attached to it. So Mm. it props up a story of perseverance and determination. Uh, We don't like to talk about stories that cause folks to drop out of the game. Um, So part of engaging with anti-racism means that we need to be willing to discuss the full spectrum of experiences, the good, the bad, and everything in between, and to just let it sit and stand as its own valid experience. And we're really not at that place yet. If we talk about race, it's because this person... Um, they've overcome it, quote unquote, overcome it. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, the really Canadian aspect of it. So do you think that Canadian, oh, sorry, sorry. Um, Do you think that Canadian hockey, particularly when we're thinking about professional hockey, do you think like Canadian culture or Canadian hockey culture sort of needs a reckoning, needs this like massive push both like in media and in practice and in policy to actually like move beyond racism. We've seen similar things in like FIFA, for instance, um, with their say no to racism campaign. Do you see, do, do you think that we need something like that? And just sorry, just before you answer, Corey, just to jump in on that same question. Like I actually think we're getting this rhetoric of a reckoning in Canadian hockey right now. I'd love to know like to what extent you think that that's real? Like what what are the issues that are transpiring and like is this reckoning a real reckoning or is it more of the same liberal BS? Yeah, so I mean Derek asked the question, do I think hockey culture is racist? And I think like the media likes to ask me that a lot and I think because they're looking for a clickbait answer because they want me to say yes and I don't think that that's necessarily true. I think hockey culture has racism in it because Canada has racism in it, right? Like two, the two, you can't separate them Mm -hmm. from each other. And so um, to Derek's point about FIFA and their their anti-racism task force that they disbanded in 2016 because I guess that they solved the problem of racism. Of course. The thing with other sports, I don't think that hockey is actually any more racist or less racist than other sports. The thing is that other sports tend to actually acknowledge the issue. So like you said, in Mm. European soccer, there's like a weekly incident, it seems, throughout the season. But they have campaigns like Kick It Out and FAIR and, and FIFA's task force. So whether it's window dressing or not, you have some place to resist. You have some place to take your complaint and you have some level of acknowledgement that this is an issue. We don't have that in hockey. The Hockey is for Everyone campaign really isn't the same kind of initiative. Um, Mm -hmm. And then to the point of it being a reckoning, um, no, it's absolutely not a reckoning. And I will say it's not because Hockey Canada has, um, is a necessary part of that conversation like it's kind of an anchor point for it to really change in canada and they just have have not engaged so would you say that um you've kind you're kind of alluding to it there do you think that there the the sort of racial tensions in canadian hockey are sort of different from currents running in um, sort of other sports or even society at large, um, other sports, particularly like in, in football, we're seeing in basketball and baseball. Do you think like sort of the tensions around race and hockey are categorically different or the, the sort of the same? Um, I think the tensions are the same. It's just how we deal with it. So I don't know if you guys read Kyle Corver's mm. piece in the Players' Tribune um last year something on white privilege like that would be groundbreaking in hockey i mean it was groundbreaking for basketball it was it was a phenomenal piece but to get white hockey players to just kind of admit that they are white i think is like a huge barrier to (laughs) overcome in and of itself so um i don't really think that the tensions are necessarily different it's just the way that hockey handles it is um it's kind of counter to coaching in sport 101 in that if you have say a terrible penalty kill you can either hope it gets better on its own by ignoring it or you can actively find ways to improve it and i think that this is a big um, kind of discourse in hockey is that why focus on the negative things Mm. but it's how do you fix anything if you don't acknowledge that you have a problem in the first place right um, so I think that that's kind of the, the hurdle that I constantly find, um, 
uh, running into is like it's there most people when I tell them that I do work on racism and, and hockey um, it's a 50 50 split between people being super interested and thinking that it's necessary and the other half are like oh is that a thing <laughs> right um I'm, I'm interested in your answer because you know for me I feel sometimes like um Obviously, we see racism in hockey because we see racism in Canada and we see racism mm -hmm. in other sports because we see racism in Canada. Um, mm -hmm. But there is also something to the fact, in my eyes, that um, Canada identifies itself so closely with hockey. Yeah. Right. And, and that to me kind of feels like a variable in this equation because it's, it's almost like the precise fact that um, that hockey is so central to Canadian national identity means in turn that it's harder to admit that there's racism in hockey than it might be in other places. Because if there's yeah. racism in other places, right, that's kind of, you know, it's ancillary. It's not, that's not real Canada. That's just like an appendage that we can kind of lop off and solve a problem ostensibly. Mm -hmm. But right, if there's racism in hockey, then we are racist, so to speak. Yes. I mean, we as Canadians, whatever that yeah. means, right? Um, and so I don't know, like, this is just more kind of meditating on the themes that you've been discussing. But that's why I like, I, you know, I've written a piece where I made, I did in fact make that clickbaity claim that Canadian hockey culture is racist. Um, because like when I interviewed um, former players, you know, one of the th findings I came across when I talked to them about race um, was like, it was, I was even, even knowing everything that I do about Canadian culture and Canadian hockey, um, it was really striking to me just how powerful and central racism was to the experiences that they were describing, right? Like an enforcer from the 80s, 90s era talking about how he played with players who went out every game trying to find a black, like if there was a black player on the other team, that white enforcer went out and wanted to fight them multiple times a game on purpose because of that, right? Like it was literally like, you know, a pugilistic sort of um, attempt to you know, prove racial superiority, essentially, right? Yeah. Or I talked to a player, uh, um, an OHL player who played much later in the 2000s, right? And he, he too felt like if you weren't basically like a white Protestant kid, then you were perceived as fundamentally different in some powerful way. It wasn't just anti-black racism, although that was like kind of, of course, key as it is everywhere uh, in Canada and Canadian hockey. Um, but he was talking about, if we were talking about East Asian folks, he himself was Jewish and felt he was actually like people would call, would tell him that he could because he played um, because there was a uh, because there's a team in the OHL, right? The Oshawa Generals. Mm -hmm. um, he was told that he should play for the Oshawitz Generals, right? <laughs> I mean, so I mean, this is just, I mean, he was sort of like, yeah, I mean, that was just, that was what life was like, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, like that was constant. That was part of the culture. And when I hear those kind of stories, I, I have to admit as a, like a, a person who came of age in Canada and played a lot of sports, and played, you know, not at a super high level, but I was playing like very competitively, at least in high school and that sort of thing. I was not encountering that in the locker rooms that I was mm -hmm. in, in quite the same way that I was hearing about it from the interview subjects I was talking to. Right. So, you know, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, to, to your point about it being this kind of anchor point for our national identity, I think that's absolutely true. Um, to question multiculturalism in Canada and to question hockey is sacrilegious. It is unpatriotic. Like Canadian. Yeah. Yes. And basically what my book does is kind of wrap these two myths um, around each other. And if one is true, then it, they should be true together, right? But the harder you look, the more they unravel. Um, and I think that that's a really... A difficult pill for Canadians to swallow because we don't have a lot else that ties us together as a nation, or at least we've been told that that's really all there is, maybe Tim Hortons, but um, that's really it. <laughs> now, when you're talking about your interview participants, I think, I think that's super interesting because when I'm talking to South Asian players, they're not allowed to um, make race noticeable in the locker room. Like they're yeah. really trying to blend in. So their yeah. experiences and the discourses that I'm listening to are 
counter to what your participants are admitting to, right? Like my participants, it was very actually hard to get the men to describe any racist incidents. It was either, yeah, stuff happened, but I fought them or I bulked up, Mm. um, I got in their face and then it wasn't an issue anymore. Whereas the women would be far more inclined to go into great detail as to who said what and when and and, and what order it happened. So um, I think there is an element that if you are of black indigenous or other man of color in hockey, um, you can't really speak up. And I, I did notice that in me asking the questions, a lot of the players were kind of working through these issues for the first time um, because nobody asked them. Nobody asked them if they are okay in hockey culture. Nobody asked them if people are treating them poorly because then you again point out their difference. And hockey is supposed to erase all of those differences. And I think that's really the issue here is that it doesn't give us the space to admit that people have different experiences in the game. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And it, it, it makes a couple things pop to mind for me. Um, one of them is the sort of method, a methodological piece uh, to kind of conducting these kind of interviews. Because, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure if you've had the same experience. But one thing I, I really found talking to athletes particularly, was often the direct questions, i.e. like, what did you experience? How did uh-huh. you feel about this? Often came up fairly empty, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. kind of the way that you're describing. But what was it was shocking to me, like it was un- would unlock a kind of door was if I asked, you know, did anyone you know have a certain type of experience? And if it became indirect in that way, suddenly there were A, like many experiences to describe, and then B, it kind of circled back around to their own experience. And suddenly they themselves had had the experience I was trying to tease mm-hmm. out in the first place, but it was a lot easier to get to by moving through um, others' experiences, which maybe says something about masculinity to a certain extent. Um, I'm not saying you were only talking to men in that context, but I mean, my, my interviews were with men. So I, I wonder if masculinity was part of that to a certain extent, like admitting a kind of vulnerability may have been a difficult yeah. way of addressing it. Um, the other thing, I'm, oh, did you have a point there? Sorry. No, I think that's a really interesting observation that you had. And I think that might have to do with this kind of um, team before me culture in hockey, right? Like you, mm. you never are really supposed to talk about yourself or toot your own horn. Um, and so, yeah, when it comes up to, to people thinking about their own experiences, like I had one girl that I interviewed and she was like, nothing, no, I've never experienced anything bad. And I was like, oh, okay. Cause she was the first one that had said that. So I circled back at the end of the interview and I was like, so again, you said that you've never had a negative experience with discrimination or anything in hockey. And she was like, well, I mean, I got called the N-word a lot. Oh, my Lord. Um, Yes. But but other than that, and so like that obviously led us down a different path. But the fact that it wasn't the first thing that came to mind, I thought was really interesting. Either it happened so often that it was normal or, you know, she didn't want to think about it. Or again, it's this thing that I just don't, I don't think about my experience. It's about the team experience or what have you. So I do think that there might be something interesting there. Yes, absolutely. And the, so the other thing kind of connected to all this that, that you brought to mind for me was that, you know, like we can talk about the the very clear anti-Black racism piece, which you just articulated and which I was seeing in my interviews. So, I mean, it, in other words, it's clearly part of this culture, undoubtedly. But then there's also, I think from your interviews, um, it was also very clear that you're get, we're getting this sort of model minority piece as well, mm-hmm. right? Which is another part, the reason I bring it up, it's another part of this multicultural equation. Right. Which really can kind of paper over a lot of these um, underlying inequities because there is such a strong structural demand for non-white people to abide by the sort of strictures of liberal multiculturalism in order to receive some kind of access to what resources are available. Right. So in other words, in the context we're talking about inclusion, like basic inclusion in hockey culture, the basic ability to get through your, your time in the locker room or on the ice, like getting the ice time you need, not being attacked or humiliated by your teammates. Like those are some basic needs that people have and mm-hmm. kind of, playing along in some sense uh, or like perform what, I'm, what i really mean by that is like performing the part that is expected of one goes a long way right like it's a really understandable subject position to have um but then it also can kind of cover up cover over in some way um just how much racism continues to exist in canadian society to a certain extent yeah in my thesis i I refer to it as kind of like a soundproofing that is provided by Mm. racialized players and to say um 
you know, that's just noise. I, I just kind of let it roll off my back or what have you. That's protecting the system. And I get it. It is a survival mechanism. And, you know, you do what you have to, to, to play the sport that you love and, and get through it. But um, unfortunately, when we protect the races, it gets to go on, right? Like it never actually gets pointed out as a problem. So um, what I found is that hockey players, and maybe this is true of athletes, but uh, the people that I talk to tend to individualize the responses, right? So whether it's I'm going to bulk mm-hmm. up, that means nobody's going to nobody's going to say anything to me. But what about the next person, right? Um, it was very much nobody was looking for a systemic solution. Nobody was going to rattle the cage. They were just going to make sure that they they got to the next round, that they got selected, that they had a good time. But nobody was really looking out for the generation behind them, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah, I, I, if I think like in particular in hockey culture, there's this like notion um, that you sort of have to. You, they're basically the most pacified athletes, I think, in in all of professional athletics. Like the same rhetoric kind of comes out from athletes, like got got to work hard for the team, have to, mm-hmm. and they like they won't engage in in any like political conversations um i think like other sports leagues they will engage much more the athletes will engage much more with some of these um these big issues like kind of head on um but one of the things i kind of want to pivot to here is that um you're a leading author for a recent policy paper for anti-racism um in canadian hockey and i was just really interested um and i think nathan is as well um in in getting you to kind of walk us through um your proposals and how they address um some of the issues of racism in in hockey sure so the policy paper is actually the result of a one-day event that we had um, at queen's university last year on march 30th and it was called the round table on racism in hockey um and it was the brainchild of bob dawson who was the first black player to play mm-hmm. uh, at saint mary's university in halifax and he's a sports historian and diversity consultant he basically phoned me up one day and he said i want to run this round table and i'm always a sucker for running an event so i said sure let's do it um <laughs> And we, we really wanted it to be around actionable items because there's a lot of people, I think, in hockey who, are, who want to, to see the culture change and they want to make a difference. But how does one person really tackle something like this, right? Um, so we got pl- players in the room, uh, media personnel, um, that, a representative from the NHL as well. We, we really wanted to get like practitioners into yeah. the space was the goal. How how successful we were at that is kind of hit and miss because everybody that you think should be there, like representatives from Hockey Canada, the OHL um, and other local teams, we put out invitations to all of them and we were overwhelmingly met with silence. So, um, (laughs) I mean, we gave people- I I don't mean to laugh. It's just not surprising. Yeah. So we gave people a great opportunity to even look like you were doing something, right? You can say on your annual report, we were present at this thing. We threw a hundred dollars at them and we support whatever, but they didn't even take us up on that offer. Um, So that was kind of Mm -hmm. troubling in and of itself. But the day was very reinvigorating, I would say, for a lot of people. Um, And the keynote speaker was a man named Eugene Arcan, who um, was a residential school survivor, a high-performance hockey player himself and a member of the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission here in Canada. So he was very reluctant to to come and speak because, you know, he doesn't get anything out of reliving the trauma. Um, so we had to convince him and he made us a deal. If, if we were going to make sure that there was policy enactment that came out of this and that the discussions didn't just stay in the room, then he would come and speak. Uh, so he was really the driving force behind why we even have this policy paper. And the paper itself is very much inspired by the Truth and Reconciliation's calls to action. So they have 94 calls to action. Five of them deal with sport because of how sport was used in residential schools and the uh, assimilation process. So um, it's kind of modeled after that. But beyond that, we tried to tackle three pillars that we believe are needed to create equity, which is power, privilege, and access. So the first one, uh, power, we're talking largely about hiring and recruiting. So who gets to make 
decisions in in those rooms um, and that hockey needs to actively look outside its traditional pipeline right it, it the system regurgitates itself um, unless you do something about it so a good example would be scouting we pick scouts from people who were former players generations mm -hmm. of former players tend to be overwhelmingly white and therefore our scouts are white um, and so you have very few people of color in the scouting system and, and it works in coaching and playing and everything like that. So you have to actively look for talent in different places. You have to mentor different people and, and prioritize uh, minority, minoritized hiring. Uh, the other thing with power was uh, lies with media, with saying the word racism, which we, we tend to get things like uh, you know, racialized uh, language or inappropriate language, tempered things yeah. like that. So we wanted the media to actually say the word racism and to draw, to connect the dots for people, to say that this isn't just an isolated incident, that these are all the stories we've done this year. Um, and this is actually part of a pattern. And then also having some sort of oversight, uh, because right now, if you experience racism, you have nowhere to take it in the system. Let's say it's the coach who's the one being racist to you. Who do you go to, right? There's nobody else for you to, to kind of talk to, and you don't want to be labeled a troublemaker. That's definitely not going to help your career. So there needs mm -hmm. to be an external pipeline there. Um, with respect to privilege, was really just addressing the overwhelming whiteness of hockey. Uh, that would involve empathy training, zero tolerance policies, consequences that we actually adhere to, um, and a retelling of hockey's history. Because the history of hockey is actually very multicultural with indigenous and black contributions, but we don't we tell it as a white man's game, and that's actually a very well told lie. Um, so the way we tell the story, whether it's through halls of fame and through movies and, and media and things like that, that all makes a difference, right? It kind of chips away at this notion that this is a game reserved for these people only. And I think we also need to nuance the difference between, um, well, expand our understanding of what racism really is. I think a lot of people think that you can only be a racist if you wear a white hood and you burn crosses on people's lawns. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. And that's the assumption is that that's, and I understand why people don't want to be labeled a racist if that's what they think it is. Um, but there are, you can be a very good person and be very supportive and do anti-racist things most of your days and then say something racist, right? Like I could do that tomorrow. The work that I've done up until this point does not protect me from that. Um, it's about accepting that you've done something wrong and unlearning or learning from that. Um, and I think maybe what people don't understand is that those of us doing the, the work day in and day out, we are constantly checking in either with ourselves and reflection or with other colleagues, like, is this racist? Is this show racist? Is this article that I'm looking at racist? And if it is, let's tease it apart and find what's good and, and find the things that need to be fixed. So um, I think people need to kind of be willing to put their ego and identity aside so that we can have these conversations with respect to privilege. Um, and the last pillar is about access, which cost is a huge one but it obviously cuts across racial lines very differently. Um, geographical access is another issue in Canada with indigenous reserves being very far removed a lot of the time. Uh, language, but also more comprehensive information about how to buy equipment, how to put it on, what hockey actually entails. Um, a lot of the hockey parents that I talk to, they're stressed to the max uh, mm -hmm. trying to put equipment on their kids, right? Like it's a yeah. stressful experience for them because there is this uh, underlying notion in hockey that people just know and you're not supposed to ask because you should already know. And especially maybe if you're, if you're a real Canadian, quote unquote, then you should definitely know. Um, mm -hmm. So it could be something as simple as having a volunteer parent or somebody who for that first month, you're like, if you need questions about putting on gear, like I'm here for you. Um, but we don't set up these things to help people integrate. We just kind of let them flounder on their own. And some people stick with it and some people don't, unfortunately. Thank you for that. And I think we're going to link the policy paper um, in the show notes. So it'll be, Perfect. it'll yes, be there definitely. for, for okay. our listeners to, yeah, to, to um, get it. But okay, the, the last thing I'm really interested in, in hearing about on this particular topic is 
Um, your thoughts overall, and uh, like, I'm sorry that this might be seeming as if I'm just trying to get like a, a sort of um, soundbite. I'm not. Oh I, no, I clickbait, Derek. You? How dare you? This Derek. is not. This is not clickbait. But I'm really interested in getting your opinions on the recent, um, relatively recent um, Don Cherry sort of fiasco. And for our listeners who. Um, may be unaware or may not be Canadian. Don Cherry is a very famous um, Canadian. In some ways, he's reflective of this Canadian hockey culture that we've been talking about. He's been a host on Hockey Night or was a host on Hockey Night in Canada for I don't know how however many years. He's also a pretty well-documented um, um, um I would say racist. Um, other people would would say a variety of other things. Um, but this past year, um, he was fired from his role because he said some anti-immigrant um, comments referring to um, immigrants not wearing poppies um, as if like they weren't part of Canada because of that. So I'm really interested to just hear your your hot take on that, Courtney. Okay, I'm going to do the thing that the hockey players do, and I'm not going to talk about myself. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to give you a story that uh, my friend uh, and fellow writer at uh, Hockey and Society, Brett Party, experienced that he was telling me about. So he was teaching at the University of the Fraser Valley, um, and the Don Cherry debacle unfolded, and he teaches a lot of um, international students. And so what they saw was that somebody said something remotely out of place and he was fired. And they said that that was the perfect example of Canadian multiculturalism because that's what they've been led to believe is that Canada, that's how we act, like that's not okay. And he had to explain to them, actually, this man has been saying those things for the last 40 years and only now have we actually let him go. So I thought it was a really instructive kind of example of like, yeah, that's actually, unfortunately, how things unfold, particularly in hockey culture, is that we let them go on for a really long time until something something breaks. Um, and, and the hope is that we can be more proactive so that that's not the case, right? That we're not running into lawsuits or what have you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was certainly not a fan of Don Cherry myself. I think it was uh, long overdue. But I think what happens to that space and that position moving forward is more telling than than any firing. If we put somebody who's awfully similar but younger than Don Cherry in that role, then then that says a lot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And by the way, I'm absolutely shocked, Courtney, that you were not a big fan of Don Cherry. So that was, a revelation, yeah. <laughs> that was a revelation to emerge out of this podcast, uh, if nothing else. Um, and, and by the way, speaking to that point you're making about um, about how things roll along until they're kind of forced, until some kind of change is forced out, right? Like it's not an actual active attempt to change yeah. because change is required to produce a more ethical kind of um relationship to um canadian identity uh what we have instead is like basically trying to cover over cover over cover over until you can't possibly do it anymore and then like mm -hmm. we have this tokenistic firing uh and, you know we just had a recent episode where we talked to um dirk hayhurst the former um, minor league baseball player and and major league baseball player and broadcaster uh who played who was in toronto and that's why i raised it because we're, we're actually in the still in the canadian context there um because he was working in Toronto at the time, and he told us a story about how, um, and this is actually not about race in this case, but about gender and misogyny and sort of like a kind of sexual violence in the workplace. And like, he brought to light an issue of essentially sexual misconduct, like in his work, like harassment in his workplace environment. And he was told like, listen, the issue here is you. Because like, this is what baseball culture is like, even in the broadcast booth. Right. Um, <laughs> and wow. if you can't handle it, you need to get out. Um, and of course, like years later, by the way, there was a disclosure that did come to light, not from him. And guess what? The individual in question was fired, right? But I can only mm -hmm. imagine not much change for the exact same reason that you are saying here, right? Because we have this culture broadly in sport where like we put up with anything, right? To retain the sort of status quo, as opposed to actively trying to change the culture in a way that benefits people who are being marginalized by it. Um, and yeah. that's Canadian. That's a Canadian feature of Canadian society. 
it yeah and i think that the longer that i'm kind of in this uh look into this world of sport the more i realize that if you have a good experience in sport it is purely by chance um, <laughs> yes, yes. it is it's not by design so i've been very, like people have asked me oh have you experienced racism in hockey and i was like no i haven't that's any discrimination has been far more gender related than race related but and then i realized that that's purely by luck because i have certain i have teammates that have experienced racism and and you know players tell me things but um there are no mechanisms put in place to try and mitigate these kinds of experiences so um the people that stay in the game it is kind of in spite of of all the negative things it's not because the sport is so great it's because they're willing to put up with more unfortunately Mm, yeah, exactly. And and by the way, you you brought you brought us right to the place we want to go next, which is you and your experience oh, in oh sport. Um, because <laughs> we're, not, we're not just putting you in the hot seat here. Um, you know, Derek and I have tried from the beginning in this podcast to um, to address the fact that you know, like we there is an auto ethnographic dimension to our engagements with sport because like we love sport in, in our lives. You know, we played sport, um, not in a super elite level, but like we played sport. We certainly engage in sports fandom. That's been a key part of our own forms of identity. And that does inform who we are as scholars and as, um, you know, figures who are trying to navigate the world of sport. So uh, you, you're, you have already located yourself here um, as someone who plays as a hockey player. Um, are there ways in which your experiences, and you talked about race there, so I, I get that. I'm, not, I'm actually not trying to like kind of, this isn't a kind of hot take moment where I want you to sort of say, yes, I've experienced racism in hockey and that's why <laughs> I talk about racism. But I actually just mean more broadly here. Um, are there ways in which your experiences as an athlete have shaped your work as a scholar? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, but I think that personally, my research has more of an impact on how I move about and experience sports spaces than the other way around. Okay. Okay. Wow. Like I'm actually very guarded about my research in hockey spaces um, because it's critical research of the game. Right. And so mm -hmm. if, if I'm joining a new team or at a tournament or something like that, and the conversation is like, Oh, what do people do? I'm not super keen to be the one who's like, I study racism in hockey in a locker room full of predominantly white people usually right so i find that that has been it's been a big adjustment i think like the more that i do the work the more guarded i am like i don't want to tell people what it is that i do and my friends will be like what are you talking about you have the coolest job out of all of us and i was like is it because <laughs> there there are there are problems that come with that cool research as well um and like I said earlier, you get one of two reactions, genuine interest or kind of a dismissal. Um, and even things like if I'm on the airplane or the train and I'm doing work or writing, I scroll through the head, like the subtitles and things pretty quickly, especially if I'm reading something on race or something, because I just don't know who's around me. So I find that I police my behavior and uh what i talk about in hockey spaces far more than i would have before i started uh this journey wow and just uh, i have to say quickly just as a super quick follow-up on that i do think what you said right there about the airplane is really powerful because as someone else you know who has who has and does work on race and sport you know, I don't police myself, especially if you're talking about like an airplane type of space. I get it in the locker room with a certain population, like you're being guarded in part because, you know, that has a very direct impact maybe on your research or on your, you know, your team experiences. And mm -hmm. I, I get that. But like you're just talking about kind of being out in the world, right? Yeah. Um, also. And that to me, like my embodiment as a white man, um, you know, has clearly impacts me differently when it comes to this question because like that that is not something i feel the need to police myself on if i'm in those kind of public spaces right i'm not scrolling mm -hmm. quickly through those head those those titles or whatever um and you know I, anyway i just i think that that's that's notable because it says something again about like canadian society and canadian culture and how so many people who sort of so many especially white people who ostensibly celebrate multiculturalism don't really understand what kind of climate exists in the country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm always super jealous of like engineers or whoever can kind of read their journal article out in the open. I was like, man, one of these days, I'm gonna be able to do that, but it's not yet. <laughs> and and by the way, I think like to, to highlight um, Courtney's 
um, skill as an athlete. I've been following you on Twitter at oh, no. oh yes, yes. these daily dangle videos have been incredible. So I urge our listeners to give you a follow um, because they're, they're awesome. There are a whole bunch of like trick shots and it seems, <laughs> I, I think you're doing it in your, like in your apartment. It's pretty awesome. Yes. Well, thank you. Um, they've been t they've been tapering off because I've been like quite busy actually during this pandemic. But the early days to get me away from the desk that was kind of um, keeping me sane. But uh, yeah, so if you want to see me stick handle a, a cabbage or something, <laughs> that's what I'm happened. literally watching that right now. Like it's on the it's on it's on my feed. So um, really interesting. But okay, so you are um, a like we've established that you're a pretty strong critic of the sort of typical and narrow tropes of Canadian national identity that are tied to hockey culture. But you're also a fan and a participant in the sport. So uh -huh. a common question that we have for, for a lot of our guests is how do you navigate these, in my view, seemingly incompatible roles, the fan and the critic and this is kind of going back to to the last question but like how do you negotiate that in your own mind like being a fan being a participant and also being like a critical scholar in this area that's a great question i mean the only the first answer i can come up with is with great difficulty um but i think that um being a critical scholar in the area actually enhances and deepens my appreciation for the game because I get to explore it on uh, a really multifaceted level. And for me, writing is catharsis. So uh, when stuff mm -hmm. bugs me, I sit down at the keyboard. Um, like the day that the CWHL started auctioning off the trophies, I was like, it was like Friday night, nine nine thirty. I came home from the rink and I just started angrily typing away. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I, it, it's nice to have an outlet and to be able to to kind of articulate things that. Um, that maybe other people are thinking too um, and to get them down for the sake of posterity or whatever but um yeah it's it's difficult at times but i think that the the critical lens actually really softens the blow so when strange mm -hmm. things happen at the rink or people say say weird things in a locker room it just becomes a point of analysis <laughs> and you're like oh yeah. that, that's kind of interesting so <laughs> i don't know if i'm using that as a defense mechanism or what but uh it it definitely helps i think Okay, well, the next thing we got to get to is the question of women's hockey, which is something we've engaged already on this show. Um, and we had a, a, a really, for, like for us, uh, an incredible interview with Liz Knox uh, mm -hmm. of the PWHPA. We love talking to her, and she was incredibly illuminating when it came to the extremely complex landscape of women's hockey and women's hockey in Canada, particularly. Um, but you are also a huge advocate of women's hockey in Canada uh, and uh, have written um, widely on the PWHPA as well. So what I want to get to is really just, I'd love to hear how, you, like what your view is of the future of women's hockey in Canada. How do you see it unfolding? What, and this is, this is maybe is a tricky one, what is your disposition to the WNHL? Um, and how should consumers NWHL NWHL? Oh my goodness. Yes, exactly. I'm, I'm apologies. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I have it written down here wrong on my sheet. I'm my apologies. Um, <laughs> uh, and how should consumers of women's hockey approach it? Um, okay. So what was, what was the first question? You know what? Okay. Why, 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 why not? I'm going to start, I'm going to start this again because that was, well, let me just, I, cause I butchered that. And so that, uh, okay. All right. How about you ask like one question at a time? <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's, that's what I should do. Um, okay. So, um, okay. So I want to segue now to, uh, Another issue you've written very widely on, which is women's hockey, particularly women's hockey in Canada, something we discussed recently in the show with uh, Liz Knox of the PWHPA. 
Um, and um, you have spoken, uh, you've written, as I sort of said about women talking, but specifically about the PWHPA. And one of the questions that emerged out of our conversation there was sort of like, what is the future of women's hockey in Canada? Uh, what possibilities exist? And so uh, I would just love to hear you kind of give us a sense right now on, on how you see the future of women's hockey in Canada unfolding in the maybe near and maybe far future. Nathan, don't you know you're never supposed to ask a sociologist to predict anything? <laughs> <laughs> we only look backwards <laughs> or like current current time. We don't predict anything. We like to make people um, uncomfortable here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I honestly don't know what's going to happen. Mm. Um, it is very nebulous at this time. It is very undefined. It's uh, tense uh, in this moment in the world of women's hockey, but... I mean, what the PWHPA is doing, it does look like they're moving in the direction that they want, which is a sustainable uh, league to, to house, house their talent. Um, and with their announcement recently that they are going to be kind of tightening up the, the regional hubs and, and having consistent training facilities, I think is a big win. Um, Brett Party and I are working on a piece actually right now for Hockey and Society, looking at the centrality of the stadium to the success of sports teams. And this has been a huge issue for women's hockey is that they've never had a home to call their own. And if you don't have that stadium mm -hmm. to sell the licensing rights to the naming rights to the luxury boxes, the club tickets, you are cutting off you're cut off from so many revenue streams that make men's sports what it is. Um, and so they've always played out of community rinks for $15 tickets, $20 tickets. That's already mm -hmm. limiting yourself, right? Um, so they've never had a place that they can walk in and that rink has their logo at center ice. And the problem in Canada is that basically every decent rink already has been assigned to a team, whether it's major junior or the local yeah. association or whatever. And I don't foresee obviously the government pitching in or whatever to build a bunch of new stadiums for women's hockey. So they're going to have to find some sort of sharing agreement. And I just don't know what that looks like. Whenever I think about the future of women's hockey, it's just where are they going to play that they get genuine um, shared autonomy in that space. And that is the big hurdle, I think. And I don't have an answer for you, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. I think you've raised some really, some interesting things that I hadn't even thought about. Like something as seemingly mundane as like having a logo at, at Center Ice. Like that means a lot it when does. we think about how we ritualized sport and how we engage with our teams i, I th i'm with you i think that means a lot i i'm curious to get your disposition towards the nwhl what are your thoughts on the nwhl um so i might be one of the few to think that they can coexist the nwhl and the pwhpa i think that both can be mm -hmm. successful but i think that that also depends on what the NWHL's vision of success is. And I have a feeling that Danny Ryland's vision might be slightly different than mine. Like if they want to house national team players for USA and Canada, it doesn't look like that's going to happen anytime soon. But if success for the NWHL means giving as many women the opportunity to play uh, post-university hockey as possible, then I think then that can be a very sustainable future. Um, tiered hockey is very good for the development of women's hockey. More options mm -hmm. is good for women's hockey. And so we have this big discussion or we've had a discussion of kind of merging one league. They need to be in one league. And we only have this discussion in women's sports. Men have so many friggin' leagues around the world <laughs> and even in North America, right? Yeah. That they can play in the ECHL or the uh, yeah. the AHL and the NHL, what have you, they can pick geography, they can pick salary range, they can pick based on the, the um, space they are in their career development. And they have these options. And we and yet when we look at women's hockey, we're like, well, you should only have one league, right? And that's, and yeah. nobody sees a problem with this discussion. So I would personally like to move away from this idea of one league, because I think if you have tiered leagues and maybe we do the thing that European soccer does and have relegation between the leagues. That would be cool. Yeah. Um, 
I love so, that idea for a forced competition, like in the actual league. I would love that across the board to be brought to North American sport. Period. Yeah, just generally. Yeah. It's more quote unquote meritocratic that way, right? So I think that that would be uh, one way for for the associations to kind of coexist. Um, so yeah, I do think that they can can be on the same playing field. They just can't be the exact same vision. So mm -hmm. do I think that people should support both? Yes. Um, but if people want to understand the landscape of women's hockey in kind of a nutshell, um, the NA NWHL typically puts an emphasis on offering equality of opportunities to women, right? We want women to be able to play. Great. Um, the PWHPA, on the other hand, is fundamentally about equality of conditions. It is about mm. compensation and work conditions. So you need both of these things to enhance women's hockey and to have true gender equity. Um, and it's not to say that there isn't an overlap in their priorities, but re rhetorically or discursively, there is a difference. So if we think of opening up opportunities as step one, building the house, um, equalizing conditions as step two is making that house into a home. So they are interconnected visions, even if they're not presented that way. And I think that that's, it's, uh, we're forcing fans to choose and they shouldn't have to, but I think it is important to understand why both of them exist the way that they do. Thank you for that. Yeah, that was that was really insightful and and clarifying. Um, and I think it's a great compliment actually to the conversation we had with Liz Knox. So, so thank you, that's, that's amazing. Um, we do love to talk about fandom. So I want to go back there one more time. Um, this time, less personal and more a kind of appraisal of fandom in a sort of theoretical sense. So um, what I want to try to do maybe is connect a little bit like fandom in women's hockey and women's sport more broadly to fandom in men's high performance spectator sport. Um, and partly this is because I, I, I want to ask, given my, my own interest in sort of fandom as... Um, a kind of instrumental relationship to a certain extent between fans and athletic workers that kind of makes demands um, in terms of sacrifice of the athletic worker in order to produce meaning for the fan. And of course, that being situated within a much larger system of capitalist relations that produces the need and desire for fans in the first place. Right? It's not coming from nowhere. Um, but what results from that dynamic is a very alienated relationship between the, the athlete um, and the spectator, right? And often the athlete then feels, and this was sort of my experience in interviewing players, the athlete feels like the, the fan doesn't really get their experience as a worker, right? Because they imagine mm -hmm. that they have some kind of this really um, elevated kind of profession. They get to play a kid's game. Like, you know, it's like this dream life that we all want to inhabit. So um, it's not work at all, right? And they can't they don't get it also when the player doesn't, doesn't give it so-called 110%, right? To fall back into that kind of hockey um, lingo. Uh, yeah, th if the player doesn't give 110%, then they're also not even justifying or validating the entire construct of fandom, which requires that type of sacrifice from the, fan, from the player, excuse me, in the first place. Um, and so what that produces is, I, I would say that this is my reading, of course, like a, a pretty inhumane dynamic in terms of everything that's going on there, because there's kind of all this dehumanization happening and estrangement between those who are involved. That's kind of my reading of traditional men's sport and instrumental relationships. Mm -hmm. I am curious, though, and, and I don't, this is a real question, not a leading question, but an actual question, something that I, I'm <laughs> thinking about, um, <laughs> and I don't know the answer to it, and I would love to just talk it through with you a little bit here. like. How does women's sport relate to that, given some of the complex dynamics that are there in terms of, um, you know, the, the denial of opportunities for players? So there's this way in which we, um, like, I think that, like, fans of women's sport can be passionate about women's sport um, in a different, I don't know, I guess what I'm, I'm trying, I'm thinking about a conversation I had um, with Elizabeth Williams the other day. Um, and she, she was talking about how, you know, she tends to have either really good or really bad experiences with fans. Um, and she was saying like the good experience is like, it's like fans often on Twitter, for instance, like are really supportive. They really uh -huh. want to connect with her, you know, and it's great. And I like, that's almost en enriching to her experience as an athletic worker. And then on the other hand, there's like this really toxic dimension, especially in terms of social media, where she hears um, like, you know, 
this constant refrain about the fact that like women's sport is not good enough and is invalid in some fundamental way and blah, 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 blah. The same kind of bullshit we hear constantly and people are subjected to constantly online in the context of women's sports. Um, I don't know. That's not the same dimension. That's not the same relationship I was talking about at all before. It's something really <laughs> different. Um, I don't know. I just, I'm just curious about your thoughts in this terrain. I mean, I think the words that stuck out for me when you're talking is like alienation and kind of um, estrangement, or, or I think that's what you said. But yeah. um, I think women's sports and women's hockey in particular, they don't build fans, they build an army. Um, mm -hmm. And it stems from partly from the accessibility that you and Liz were talking about uh, in previous episode. Like, I'll give you an example. So, Melody Daou's on our Canadian national team. She has her own line of custom hats. Um, so I wanted a hat. I ordered a hat. Obviously expected, if you're going to order a hat from an Olympian, surely somebody's going to handle that for her, right? She's um, a decorated athlete. She's a mother. No, Melody Daou will answer the email and take your hat order and ask you which stitching you want and what color, what have you. Um, and that's just kind of like a small example of that accessibility. But on the other end of that spectrum, you've got people like Julie Chu, Carolyn Wallet, uh, Marie-Philippe Poulain, Jean-Vivre Lacasse, Aaron Ambrose, on the coaching staffs of Concordia and McGill University's women's hockey team. Mm -hmm. And I don't think people quite understand what that's like. That's like having Mario Lemieux coach you at his prime, like not as a retired <laughs> yes. player, right? In his prime. <laughs> That's like having Absolutely. Serena Williams come and coach yeah. your college team. So this yeah. generation of players is having a huge impact on those following them. And so it's not just fans. It's like um, their pupils, really. So the NHL and other investors, I think that they're foolish to not capitalize on all the work, the labor that these women have been putting into growing the game for them. And whether that means throwing their weight behind the NWHL or the PWHPA or both, there's this huge opportunity to one, be on the right side of history and two, to get in on the ground floor of something that is nothing but potential. Um, and if anybody's wondering why it's this group of women. Why Why is this happening now? These women are the first generation that has grown up with internet international level competition mm -hmm. their whole lives. So mm -hmm. 1990s, the first year that the Women's World Championship happens. Uh, Poulin's born in 91 and Hillary Knight's born in 89. So these girls have grown up knowing that they belong in the rink, right? Mm -hmm. We are only just starting to understand what women's hockey is capable of. So I don't think that fandom is even really an accurate description of the way that these women give back to the community. It is, it's, it's something completely different. Like I've never had an NHL player email me about anything that I've ever bought or ordered. Um, so it's just a completely different kind of relationship that um, is very unique. And I think it's very special. Um, and, and that's partly, I think, why there's so much drama around these two entities is because we all care so deeply about what happens here. I'd, I'd like to close, um, because I don't want to take up too much of your time on a Friday evening, <laughs> with asking you a question that we ask almost all of our um, all of our guests, and thank you again for, for taking the time out to chat with us. But where do you think um, sport is going after the pandemic, and particularly like women's hockey? Where do you think that's going after the pandemic? And you said earlier, like, don't ask a sociologist to predict. Well, yeah, I'm now doing you've it asked again. me two like, questions I, to predict. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, obviously, I'm very hopeful that things will look different. I don't think we do this work without being hopeful. But at the same time, what we're seeing right now is a doubling down of everything that was wrong with the game. Um, mm -hmm. With the rinks that are opening up, they're only allowing like private lessons and four people to a sheet. And so it's people that can afford that. Um, mm -hmm. It's gotten far more exclusive in the span of, you know, three months basically and and tennis and golf open up as the first sports to come back so you've got country club sports that yeah. um enable people to do the thing that they love but football and, and soccer are going to be quite different so yeah i don't really know i would i'm I hope that somewhere along the line somebody's just gonna have this epiphany um 
coming out of like their COVID coma or something. And they're like, we need to support women's sports. <laughs> but um, I don't foresee that happening based on what they have been rolling out so far. Um, mm -hmm. So we've got yeah. a long way to go. And I think college sports will be telling because it seems like they're slashing a lot of university and, and college budgets. Um, yeah. And athletics goes first. Um, but I think if if there's anybody out there that has the power to make this happen that's listening, I like to implore people to understand how much power they have when they are dictating a budget, right? That you are allocating money um, into certain places and those are very powerful decisions. Um, so you can actually have a great impact on, on um, the future of women's sports. If there is the political will to do it, it's really not that difficult, but I don't think people really understand how much power they have um, even when they know that they are powerful. Well, that is a great place to end. Um, thank you, Courtney Zito, for um, chatting with us and spending the last hour with us. Um, and thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks, gentlemen. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you enjoy the show, please feel to like, share, and leave a review. And as always, you can reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod.